0: Chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. And on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet of the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Baslam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elishab, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to To Toab, prepared for Toab a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Xerxes, king of Babylon, um, the first went to the king. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Toab, preparing for him a chambers in the court of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Toab out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Sheshlem the priest, and Zodak the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, the son of Zochor, son of Mattiah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. The word of the Lord. Be to
1: God. As the kids are heading out, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, a church full of kids today. We thank you for, uh, not only for uh, for Finn and Kira and Emma, but for all the children who are here today, and for all the promises you have made to each one of them. And we pray now that as they go and learn uh, about you from you and story keepers that you would be teaching us to here, that no matter what point in our spiritual journey we're at today, that this would be a significant time, a time when we learn from you and are transformed by you. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I always get a bit of a chuckle when I read some of the things that are written about me, not so much uh, during my time, but certainly in your time, uh, some of the things have been written. Uh, It's not as if I'm short of uh, admirers from over the years. In fact, I brought a couple of quotes with me just to read to you some of the things that have been written about me. Here's the first one. From the book of Nehemiah, I learned how to plan my work, organize my time and resources, integrate my duties into the total operation of the company, motivate others, and measure the results. I learned the importance of setting realistic goals and found out what to do before I reached my objectives. Second, we seem unable to find a single fault to counterbalance Nehemiah's many and great virtues. Nehemiah's character appears to be faultless. Patriotism, piety, prudence, perseverance, courage, and fairness in his administration of affairs were some of his sterling qualities. He looked to God for guidance and protection and used his methods with careful discrimination. He pursued his course unflinchingly and met the enemy within and without with equal firmness and Success. Now, all of that is very flattering, and some of it bears some resemblance to reality, but I read quotes like that, and I honestly want to ask the people who wrote it, did you read the end of the book? Did you read chapter 13? Because success is not a word I would associate with my story at the very end. In fact, anything but. By the very end, it's a bit of a downer. Nehemiah ends on a bit of a downer. In fact, not just a bit, a big downer. Just in case you're a little confused this morning, let me introduce myself. My name's Nehemiah. Never worn one of these before, but I figured, you know, suits a governor, wearing a bow tie. And I'm here to tell you a little bit about the end of the story, my end of the story, which is a a bit of a downer. Some of you know what led up to this part of the story. so let, but let me uh, tell the rest of you who maybe are a little bit unfamiliar with it. About 140 years before what uh, you've been reading in this book, uh, about 140 years before, the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem and Judah and had ransacked it, destroyed it, and taken off the people into exile Babylon. The Babylonians then got defeated by the Persians. The Persians were ruled by King Cyrus, and Cyrus, after about 70 years, said, He was going to let some of the people come home, so first wave of people come back to Jerusalem. There was a second wave of people led by Ezra that came back. During that time, as I think you may know, I was serving as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia, in the city of Susa. And while I was there, news came to me that despite these two waves of people going back, despite the rebuilding of the temple, the city really was in a really nasty mess. Bad trouble and shame were the words that were reported to me. And so to make a short story even shorter, I heard, I came, I recruited, and we built. I asked the king if I could go back to Jerusalem. He said that was okay. I went. I recruited a whole army of people. We set them to work. We we worked on the walls of the city, and after 52 days, despite the opposition of of terrible men like Tobiah and Sanballat, You'll hear more about Tobiah in a few moments. Despite all their opposition, we rebuilt the walls in 52 days. Some people have said that would have been a great time to, as I think you would say, roll the credits. I mean what a great success story. 52 days, walls rebuilt, but as you know the story keeps going. It, it didn't end there and the story kept going because I wasn't just interested in rebuilding walls, I wanted to rebuild a people. And so after the rebuilding the walls ezra and the levites and myself called together this massive one day bible study and we gather all the people together to read god's word and as we read god's word they rediscover who who he is his character his nature his love for them his purpose for them after that we we celebrated a whole month of festivals during the month of tishri at the end of those festivals everyone could have gone home they said no we want to stay an extra day in order to confess our sins to god to recognize these areas where we failed him. And out of that confession then, in your chapter 10, they make this covenant with God, this commitment to God. And, and I want to tell you the four areas where they make the commitment because it's going to come up again in a minute. They say, okay, here are the areas where we failed and we want to do better now. We want to to, to recognize the, the sanctity of the temple and we want to no longer fail to keep the Sabbath, but we want to keep it holy. And no longer will we allow our children to marry foreigners and we want to be generous in the giving of our tithes for the upkeep of the temple and so all those all those promises were made i mean it could it seemed like it couldn't get any better and then but it just kept getting better because then 10 percent of the people say you know what we will move back into the city so for a city that hadn't been inhabited for 140 years now there are people living in the city again and then to cap the whole thing i think you heard about this last week we had this massive worship service to dedicate the walls. And not just one choir, two choirs moving in separate directions along the walls and they, they come back around to the temple and they just sing praises to God. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. So I've often thought if I had been just kind of a neutral observer watching this or reading about it, I would have said, okay, well, that's, that's the end. That's the Curtain comes down, the credits can roll there because that's just a fabulous ending to a story. I mean, if if ending after chapter 6 with the rebuilding the walls was a good story, this is a great story. It doesn't get any better than this. So let's roll the credits, end of chapter 12, great ending, fabulous celebration, fabulous worship, and they all lived happily ever after, except they didn't. Everything starts to unravel in chapter 13. And so I'm here to sort of tell you how that all unraveled. And some of you are probably thinking, really? You're going to spend the next amount of time just kind of dissecting this downer for us this morning? I just came for a baptism today. I I just came because it's the first Sunday of Advent and I thought it would be good to be in church. Well, yeah, it is going to be a bit of a downer, but we're going to get to going up again. Because here's what I want you if you remember nothing else of what I say today, here's what I want you to remember about my story. And it's this, that God doesn't measure your life on the scale of success, but on the scale of faithfulness. Doesn't measure your life on the scale of success, he measures it on the scale of faithfulness. And I'm gonna tell you how that panned out in my story in three steps. First of all, pledge is broken secondly a prayer to remember and thirdly the promised solution Pledge is broken prayer to remember and a promised solution so the question is how did things go from such heights to then totally unraveling like i just told you well i believe you have a saying it's when the cat's away the mice will play and that explains a lot of what happens in this final chapter of this book, because I, after 12 years of being the governor in Jerusalem, I returned back to, uh, to Persia, to Susa, to take to up my responsibilities with, with the king. And, and so there I, I went back and served the king for a, a period of time. But after a period of time, I, I asked him, can I go back and resume being the governor again in Jerusalem? And he said, yeah, that's fine. So so back I went. And, and to be honest, you know, I thought, well there'll be a little bit of spiritual kind of uh, cleaning up to do. You know, I've been away for a little bit of time and, you know, hopefully not too much. I mean, we've been through so much together. We'd kind of read God's word and confessed our sin, made a covenant. Hopefully the, the level of obedience still was pretty high. So I get back to Jerusalem and discover that things could not be worse. Remember those four areas that I mentioned that the people had pledged in the covenant, every single one of them had gone down the toilet. Every single one of them were worse than they had been before. It was an absolute mess. I realized that things had moved south when I got there and I discovered that my old nemesis, Tobiah, whom I mentioned a moment ago, some of you may remember him from previous uh, talks about this book, my old nemesis, Tobiah, had, uh, had moved into the temple courts. The, the priest at the time was a guy called Eliashib. turns out that Eliashib was related to Tobiah. And Eliashib had decided that he was, he was responsible for the store, storerooms in the temple. He decided, well, let's just clear out some of the storerooms and make a nice little apartment for Tobiah. And so that's what they did. They, they cleared out the room of all the utensils, all the products that we used for the, the smooth running of the temple, and Tobiah moves in. This wasn't just the innocent reallocation of space I want you to know. This was a spitting in the face of God in terms of what was happening in the temple and and, and recognizing that that Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, an enemy, should should not be there. More on that later on. I I got wind of this, and I'm absolutely furious. So I, I, I turn up one morning, storm into the apartment. Tobiah's a little shocked to see this. Come in there, and I start just, taking his furniture, his t- t-shirts, his record collection, his mattress, all of it, toss it out on the curb for the Tuesday morning trash collection. He's, he's a little taken aback. I throw him out of the room, and we, we cleanse the temple because this is a holy place. We bring back the utensils. We bring back the, the, uh, the grain offering and the frankincense, everything that should have been there. So that dealt with one issue, but part of the reason why Ellie had thought it was okay I think to clear out a storage room in order to make an apartment was that was that the grain which was supposed to be in that room was not coming in with the frequency and in the quantity that it was supposed to be doing and that just pointed to another one of the the pledges that had been broken which was the people were not tithing the grain as they had promised to do in the covenant they had promised that in in through this covenant they were going to provide everything necessary for the upkeep of the temple and for the maintenance of the worship, well, they didn't. Turns out that they stopped giving, and so you had a situation where the Levites and the the musicians in the temple had to give up, stop their assigned roles in, of ministry in the temple, to return back to their their land in the rural areas to start growing crops, or else they would starve. So all these grand promises that had been made that we will not neglect the house of, the God, of God, counted for nothing. All their great words of, of we, will, we will feed, we will feed the, the workers, the people who work in the temple, counted for nothing. So I gathered together various officials in the, in the, in the city and around the temple, and we kind of had a come-to-Jesus moment there, and I said, look, we, we need to fix this. So, so we got some administrative things taken care of, In order that the steps could be taken and and things could improve a little bit so there was the desecrating of the temple there was the failure to pay the tithes but that was just two of the broken pledges the third had to do with the sanctity and the holiness of the Sabbath turns out for the people that profit was much more important than piety the problem on this front was twofold one the people were were on the Sabbath coming in from Judah to, to the city, bringing their, their produce in order to sell on the Sabbath, continue to work on the Sabbath. Not only they were there, though, but some foreigners, the Tyrians, uh, would bring in their fish and other things to sell on the Sabbath. Apparently, everybody just decided, you know, the, the Sabbath really isn't that important. You know, why, why observe the Sabbath when you can make a decent extra amount of money on this day? You know, basically open all hours, open seven days a week, we'll just continue doing what we do every other day of the week. Well I gathered together the nobles and I said, look, this isn't an economic issue, this is a theological issue. This is, you know, breaking the Sabbath like they're doing, like our forefathers had done, just brings down God's anger and wrath upon us the way it it had with our ancestors. And so we decide, okay, well, words aren't going to be enough. We can't just say, okay, just stop this. We've we've got to take some steps. So what we did was, before the next Sabbath came, we went and we closed up the gates at at, at nighttime, just before the Sabbath, and we said, okay, these gates aren't going to be opened again until after the Sabbath. So that managed, we managed to keep the uh, traders out of the city. Well, some of them thought they'd get a little bit cute then, and they came and at the, outside the walls they'd set up their stands on the Sabbath with, with the hope that they would entice the people inside the city to come outside the city to buy their wares. Well, we got wind of these lollygaggers. We went out and spoke to them and said, look, if you don't stop this, there are going to be consequences. And it must have been enough of a threat because they, they stopped and we were able to prevent that kind of trading going on. And from that point on, we had Levites set up at the gates every Sabbath so that no one could come in to do the trading. So the desecration of the temple, there was the failure to give the tithes, there was the failure to keep the Sabbath holy. It wasn't all, though, because the fourth one had to do with the marriage with foreigners, allowing the children to marry foreigners. Now this, this issue of foreigners actually related to my old friend Tobiah because the law said that you could not bring a foreigner into the house of God. And Tobiah, as I mentioned earlier, and as mentioned earlier in the book, was an Ammonite. The Ammonites, specifically and the Moabites, were actually specifically prohibited from coming into the house of the Lord because of their opposition, what they'd done to the Israelites previously. So Tobiah had no right to be there besides the fact that no one should be setting up an apartment in the temple. But the bigger issue here was, and a wider issue, was the allowing of your children to marry foreigners. Now, I always make a point when I'm talking to groups like yourselves to have a point of clarification here, because this was not about ethnic purity. This was not a ban against interracial marriage for all times and all cultures. This issue had to do with something else. My concern here, my protest, and I admit, There was some hair-pulling involved, as the text says, as I sought to deal with this issue. My issue was not with ethnic purity. It was with spiritual purity. The reason God had said you're not to marry foreigners was because the people of the lands worshipped other gods. This was about God protecting us from idolatry, protecting us from ourselves, that we would not marry people who worshipped other gods. You know, if if those people were to... to, uh, come to faith in, in God, in Yahweh, and then marry an Israelite, we would celebrate that. That was wonderful. Case in point, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She marries Boaz, comes in and becomes part of the family tree of Jesus. But the bigger issue here was the, the problem that had to be addressed was, was that the inter- married, marrying people who were outside of the faith for this next generation Was going to cause spiritual disaster, because the fact was at this point half of the children who were living in Jerusalem were not could not speak Hebrew; they were speaking the language of Ashdod, and therefore, which was not just a symptom of the problem, it was a threat. It meant that, that there was going to be continued erosion in terms of our own identity as God's people, in terms of how we thought, in terms of how we expressed ourselves. It also meant that that there was going to be a lack of access to the very word of God written in Hebrew, which would just result in the paganization of the people. So that the mistakes, the errors of one generation could very quickly undo work of centuries. So all this unraveling of the promises, all this breaking of the pledges, and I still, like, people want to talk about the success of Nehemiah? Just a quick aside for any of you who are here who might just wonder about the veracity of this story or any of the stories in the Bible. Here's one thing to consider. You know, if if the Bible had been written just as a piece of propaganda, a piece of spin, you know, fairy tales for people to make people feel good, this this story would have finished in chapter 12. I mean, no one would have intentionally added. This dismal downer of chapter 13, if it hadn't actually happened. But it's here because it did. You know, all those pledges that were broken were broken essentially for one big reason, and that is that the people failed to trust God. They weren't willing to trust God, and so they broke these laws. And this is where it relates to you a little bit, because, you know, granted, when these laws came to you via the New Testament, they uh, they had a fresh coat of paint on them as they were, but they still address issues that God really cares about significantly in your life. God cares about what you do with your money too. He cares about how you would be thinking about what you might pledge in the stewardship drive. He cares about who you would choose to marry in terms of do they share the same faith as you. He cares about the fact that he wants you to worship and rest on the Lord's day as a testimony to the fact that, that your work is not your idol. And he cares that you do all these things because you trust him. And your failure to trust in those areas really is at the, at the root of it is the same root as the problems that my people had, which is a failure to trust God. And because that was just across the board with the people in my day, I was furious. I was furious. One of your commentators puts it well. He said that if, if in my first visit I was a whirlwind, in my second visit I was all earthquake and fire uh, towards this city that had decided during my absence just to have this comfortable compromise uh, with pagan nations. And that's exactly right. I mean, it was so bad that, I mean, while I was away, it's not like there was no one addressing these issues. The prophet Malachi, whom you may have heard of, last book of your Old Testament, he was, he was addressing these very issues while I was back in Persia. The very same issues, but to no avail. To no avail. And so, in the end, as the chapter ends, you know, I'm just kind of admitting that this hasn't turned out the way I wanted it to and I'm just trying to steady the ship and in the end just saying to God God you know I've done what I can I just I have to hand myself and, and all the people over to you which is how I end up in our, my second point which I promise will be shorter than the first my second point really being a prayer to remember as I come before God in the very last words of the book remember me O God for my good. Now, you may have noticed when your fine young elder was reading the scripture earlier today that, uh, that his final verse had a version of that prayer as well. In fact, I, I prayed a version of that remember me prayer three times in this chapter. Let me uh, just remind you of those. First came in, in the passage that was read for us earlier, verse 14 Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then this final one, at the very end of the book, remember me, O my God, for good. What are those prayers all about? You know, I've been challenged quite a bit for two millennia and and then some, About what those prayers sound like, and and it usually goes something like this: that people will come to me and they say, "You know, Nehemiah, you started out so well. I mean, chapter one, that prayer in chapter one, that's on my mantelpiece. That's such a great prayer you have there. You know, praying to God that He would remember His promises, that if the people repent and if they obey God's commands, He will bring them back to Jerusalem. What a great prayer that is! What are these prayers?" Because, Nehemiah, you know what these prayers sound like? They sound like you kind of saying, well, remember me for what I've done. Remember me, and I don't really care what you do with the other people, but remember me. And I want to tell you that's not what was going on in these prayers. These prayers were not a pity party for me. These prayers actually were something very different. These prayers were a confession on my part that I recognized that we as a people were still in exile. We were still in exile. You know, that prayer in, in chapter 1, I, I physically was in exile. I was in Persia, Kabir to the king, uh, praying this prayer. as a prayer of exile. But these prayers in chapter 13, you know, granted, the, there had been a, a wave of people who had come back so in, out of exile. So in some sense, they were post-exile. But, and granted, I was you know, s- saying these prayers within the confines of the temple, within this context of the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem. But aside from geography, these were exile prayers. These were exactly the kind of prayers prayed by the psalmists. Psalm 86, Psalm Psalm 89, Psalm 106. Remember me prayers in the context of exile. And why was I praying prayers of exile? Because the people may have come back, but it was as if they'd never really left as if they'd never really left. They'd come back and they just picked up the behavior of their ancestors, disobeying God, breaking his commands. If the purpose of of the exile was to enable people to be obedient, it had failed miserably. It had failed. I'm not a young man anymore, so I'm going to check my notes. I could blabber on here for a while and you'd be like what the heck is he talking about So I said, you know, being in exile, if you heard in those final words uh, a sense of desperation, a sense of tinge of tiredness, of sadness, you're absolutely right. Because I knew that for all the obedience and all the great stuff that had gone on, if, the, if this community of returned exiles were to be allowed to continue on after my departure, after my death, whenever that would come, the likelihood, the pattern was such that they would just continue the checkered, checkered path and course that they had taken up to that point. But that does bring me to my final point where things start to move up because here's, here's the promised solution. You know, here I was, here I was literally, and this is true, here I was the, the last man standing of the Old Testament. You know, sometimes people don't realize this and maybe that's because of how your books in the Old Testament are are ordered. But I I was this was the last historical scene of, of the Old Testament. I was the last man standing in, in sort of the grand arc of, of the of the story of the Old Testament. Sort of with a you can imagine a spotlight shining on one individual. Here's the last person. Please shut out the lights as you leave the room. That, that was me. The last act in Act One. Had I been a success? Not if you success being the ability to see something through to the end and change happen. That hadn't happened at all. You know, sure, we rebuilt the walls, and the walls continued for quite a number of years after that. But, you know, the, the chinks that were appearing in the people in, in chapter 13 were just a sign that, In that regard, things have been been a bit of a failure. But the important thing to remember, as I told you earlier, is that God doesn't measure your life on the scale of success. He measures it on the scale of faithfulness. And so when I would reflect back on, on my life in terms of that scale, then I'm here to tell you that success may be defined a little bit differently. Because as I look at my life, sure, I hadn't been lastingly successful in terms of bringing about change. But it was never really to be about me. It was never to be about me. I really was there just to whet the appetite of God's people for another leader who would come and be faithful and successful. That, of course, being the Messiah. Being Jesus, You know, I could never change people's hearts. I could never usher in God's rule and reign, his kingdom. But this Messiah would come who would literally be the last man standing because he was the only person who lived a perfect life. He was the only person who never sinned or disobeyed. But you look at the end of his life, And it looked a little bit similar in that his life looked like a failure, too, at the end, not a success. Because at the end of his life, he's hanging on a cross. He's being executed. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just this sense of abandonment and aloneness. But the whole thing is that he was being faithful to God's call to do what he was to do in order to successfully pay for the sins in your life and in my life. And that's exactly what he did. He died on that cross, and then he rose to life, defeating death, and he ascended to the Father, and then he poured out the promised spirit, the spirit that was promised by the prophets, the spirit that comes into your life, get this, so that now you are enabled to do the things that the people in my day didn't do. That you're enabled now to trust God in your life such that you want To be generous with your money that you want to to honor him on the lord's day in your worship and in your rest that you want to to marry someone who shares your faith in jesus you're enabled to do those things because the spirit now has come into your life so if you remember nothing else about my story i want you to remember this that god does not measure your life on the scale of success but on the scale of faithfulness if you think God's call in your life is to be Mr. or Mrs. Success in terms of your work or, or your family or your, your marriage or your friendships or, or your ministry, you're setting yourself up for frustration because life in this world is just a series of disappointments where things don't work out the way you always want them to, where things will dismantle and fall apart and then you have to rebuild them again and rebuild them again. But God's call on your life is not to be successful, it's to be faithful. It's to be faithful in following Jesus and trusting in him that one day in due time he will return and he will successfully rebuild all things the way they're supposed to be and make all things new. Make all things new. And along the way you will see God demonstrate his power in wonderful ways as I saw in my time. And at other times, you'll also be much more aware of your own weakness and failure. But in all those times, in those times of brokenness, you discover, as I discovered, that his strength is always enough. God's strength is always enough. So that in the end, success for God's people in this life is simply about being faithful to him. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you the results with you. We can leave all things in your hands. That You've just called us to be faithful to how you instruct us in your word, faithful in trusting in Jesus, faithful in the one who came into this world to do what Nehemiah couldn't do, to do what none of us could do. And so we thank you today for him. We thank you that you heard the cry that you would come, O Messiah, You would come into this world to rescue us, to pour out your spirit so that we might be rescued out of our own exile as well. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.